we are in Ecclesiastes, and last week we got about a third of the way into chapter 5. Solomon also wrote Proverbs, of course, and Proverbs is pretty straightforward. Ecclesiastes is, well, I'll say this, but on the other hand, and you'll get this back and forth, if you will, from the approved wisdom of Proverbs, and then he'll sort of say, on the other hand, so at the end of the book, he brings it all into focus, but this middle part sometimes feels a bit indecisive and perhaps even occasionally contradictory. So anyway, we finished 5-7 last time, so let's get into 5-8. What he's going to be talking about is wealth and power. So verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched over by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over him. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. The idea that the king is served by the field, which is to say that land is the source of all wealth. It all comes back to land eventually, no matter how far away from the land economic activity may drift. So you got a stockbroker who's wheeling and dealing and doing stuff, but that stockbroker's got to eat. And so eventually it all goes back to land. So first off, you have this idea of bureaucracy. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So the idea is that there is a hierarchy of government. And one of the things we talked about on Shabbat is that Joseph had set himself up a police state. And the priests were exempt. They are what we would call the deep state. They're the ones that live around the capital, and they exist by serving the government. So the idea here is that government is essentially oppressive. And the ones at the bottom, the poor, are the ones that wind up getting oppressed. Now, verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. That last verse 9 is not universal. That's the English standard. Let me read verse 9 from the Tanakh, and you'll see the difference. Thus, the greatest advantage in all the land is this. He controls a field that is cultivated. Who's he? I'm going to hang with the English standard because I like it. Because what it says is a king who pays attention to the economics of his land. He sets things up so the economy in his country works. And that becomes then a blessing. Since we said all wealth ultimately comes from the land, a king who is a number of layers of bureaucracy above a farmer but it is a benefit to the nation if the king pays attention to the health and welfare of the ones who are cultivating the field. The good government is the one that pays attention to the basics and makes sure that the basics are well taken care of, and then that good husbandry, starting from the bottom, supported from the top, leads to a decent country for everybody. We have installed an unaccountable bureaucracy where we used to be able to actually change our government every four years, we no longer can. Because what you've got is this massive inertia of bureaucrats who are unelected and go on forever. When I was in Washington, I was in the Army, and I was a bureaucrat. 
And what they said is, governments come and go, but he who sits the longest makes the rules, which is to say, an elected government may come or go, but the bureaucrat down here who sits through several governments is in fact the one who makes government policy. Our problem is the government has become self-serving instead of serving us. Verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. First off, someone whose motivation is money will never have enough money. I'm not talking about successful people. There are successful people who create wealth and so forth. There are people who love money, and that's different. The problem is not generating wealth, because generating wealth is in itself benign. In fact, God says, if you follow my laws, I will generate wealth and I'll bless your socks off. So wealth isn't the problem. What he's talking about is someone whose sole motivation is money. The thing I want in life is money, and that person will never be satisfied. And he who loves wealth will not be satisfied with his income. The amount of wealth you have will never be sufficient. It's sort of like the idea of your eyes being bigger than your stomach. The things that can be encompassed by greedy eyes are far bigger than can be generated by diligent hands. And so if you follow the I want, as opposed to simply looking at what you need to accomplish what you want to do, and understand, if what you're trying to do is build Microsoft, you got to have billions of dollars in order to employ all those people and all that. I'm using Microsoft as an example. I don't know anything about Bill Gates. So if you know something about Bill Gates, and this is a lousy example, just keep it to yourself. But what he's done is he has built a business that has been a blessing to everybody. And in order to do that, it takes a lot of money. So being rich is not the problem. The problem is having eyes that are just expansive beyond anything that you need for what you're called to do. Same thing with income. If you love wealth, if that's the thing that truly motivates you, then you're never going to be satisfied with your income because it's never going to be enough. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Now, that may take a little bit of unpacking. Go back to our example of Bill Gates. Bill Gates needed a lot of money or to generate a lot of money in order to make Microsoft. It's a massive enterprise. But the more he generated, the more people he hired, so you had more people who were eating his wealth, if you will. Now, some of that is benign because one assumes one hires an employee because the employee generates more wealth than the employee consumes. I mean, that's sort of the basis of profit. That's not what's talked about here. What we're talking about is what I will call bureaucrats. So the more wealth we have, the more bureaucrats you have that are generated by government that consume that wealth. Take, for example, the Hoover Dam across the Colorado River. They built that in a year or two. This was back in the 30s and 40s. They built that dam in a year or so. You would not be able to get your environmental impact statements and your permits done in under 20 years now. And I'm not exaggerating. So the idea that 
when there's wealth, parasites flock to the wealth and eat on it is, I think, not a statement about productive employees. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about parasites that come in and feed on the wealth. And the next thing it says, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So what that says is, the only thing it gets the owner is he looks at his balance sheet and he sees all of this money in the bank, quote unquote, or stock value or something like that. So he can see, but he can't spend it because it's being eaten up by people. But he is able to say, wow, look at the size of my stock portfolio or look at the size of my bank account, and what he doesn't look at is the debts on the other side of people that are eating it faster than he's generating it. Verse 12, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let them sleep. So the deal here is the laborer in this case is the poster child for the one who does not love money, as in that is not his sole motivation. He works, he gets paid for his work, and he rests, whereas the rich man who is eating at a heavily laden table with all of the food that he wants doesn't sleep well because he is consumed with caring for, generating, and looking after his wealth. He is afraid that he's going to lose it so he can't sleep. Verse 13, there is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness with much vexation and sickness and anger. Now let's start with the end of it and go back. All his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. That's basically the same thing as sweet as the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Same idea. Now, the problem here is in verse 13. Everything is an expansion of verse 13. It is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And what that's talking about in Hebrew is timtum halev, which is a stopped up heart. So someone has fallen in love with wealth and every bit of wealth that he gets sticks to his fingers. He hoards it and he brings it in and that's the thing that delights his heart. And what that winds up is he is hurt by it because at the end of the day, he is going to go to the grave naked just as he came out of the womb. So what he's doing is he is setting his heart on something that is ephemeral and unimportant in the great scheme of things. That's what that paragraph is saying. He may make a bad business decision and be ruined. That's certainly possible. It's also possible that he goes to the grave with a great big bank account, but the bank account terminates at the grave. It doesn't go with it. And the point is he has spent his life with his heart stayed 
on something that is ultimately unimportant. And by the way, if you were to read these same concepts in the book of Proverbs, the whole thing would take like four lines. What Solomon is doing for us here in Ecclesiastes is he's unpacking some of that for us. 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. So what he's saying here is enjoy the work that God's given you to do. That's thing one. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Notice, there's nothing wrong with the wealth and possessions, and the thing that is important is the power to enjoy them, as opposed to having your heart set upon them, and having your eyes bigger than your hands, and always being vexed because you don't have enough. The gift here is the abundance that God's given you, and the ability to enjoy it without worrying about, am I going to get robbed, do I have enough, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. The idea here is contentment with what you have, whether that you have is little or much. So everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So he's rejoicing in enjoying the stuff that he has. He's enjoying the work that he's given to do. He is enjoying his life, and that's a gift of God. So now verse 20, at least in my translation, this one takes a little unpacking. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. The deal here is he will not remember the days of his life. What that is saying is he will not live in the past. The memories are there. You remember all the things that you've done, but you are not agonizing over the past and the mistakes you've made and the things that were done to you and the injustices you suffered. You don't dwell in the past. You just enjoy your life. That's what that's saying. Chapter 6. And by the way, I will remind you again, this under the sun phrase occurs over and over and over again in the book. And what that is to say is the world we exist in today is under the sun, which means under heaven. There is a world that is above the sun, which is heaven. And all of this stuff that he is talking about is this mortal life that we are going through now. It is not at this point talking about eternity. So there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, the stillborn child. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. 
even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. The idea here is if you can't enjoy the things of this life, a stillborn is better off than you are. Verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You can regard for his mouth as a metaphor for his eyes. I see all this stuff that I want, I want, I want, I want, and I'm working for it because I want. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. I'm not sure I understand what this means. Let's try. This is about the fourth time I've read it, and I'm still not sure what it means. So what advantage has the wise man over the fool? This happens over and over again in Proverbs as well. And it happens over and over again in Ecclesiastes. Because remember, as we started off in the early chapters, this is Solomon that has all of the wisdom available to man, has all of the wealth that he could want. The wealth of Solomon is fabled in literature and everything else. He was extremely wealthy. He had male and female slaves. He had power. He was king over Israel. He had everything. There was nothing that he wanted that he could not have. I mean, he couldn't have had a transistor radio, but what he could do is have Bette Midler pulled into the throne room and have her sing the song. He didn't need a radio. You understand what I'm saying? The fact that he didn't have a transistor radio is no problem. He could get the singer and bring her in there and have him sing live any time he wanted. In fact, I was thinking about this as I was reading it. Do you know that in Rome, the emperors had ice cream? They had runners who went up to the Alps in northern Italy, and they cut blocks of ice, and they wrapped them in straw and insulation and ran all the way down the Italian peninsula to Rome and made ice cream for the Caesars. The Caesars had hot and cold running water in the form of slaves. So the idea here that Solomon has everything that a man could want is literally true. And that's what makes this so powerful because you can't say, well, if he had this, it would have satisfied you can't say that because if he wanted that, he could have it. Anyway, the point is, early in the book, he tried being wise. He tried being a fool. He tried being depressed and found none of those was satisfying. So what we've done is we've come back to the idea that being wise is ultimately not satisfying under the sun. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? I am assuming that we're talking about a poor man who lives skillfully, which I think is the best way to describe it. He's not rich, he's poor, but he is a skillfully living man. In other words, he knows how to conduct himself. First night, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And I'm assuming wandering of the appetite is musing over the stuff that you don't have and you wish you did. One of the things Yeshua says 
is if you look at a woman and lust after her in your own heart, then it's as if you committed adultery. That is wandering of the appetite. Your appetite is just sort of wandering around looking for something to light up. Ooh, that looks good. And then you fix on it and, and so forth. Verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. So first off, the idea of cyclical time. Remember, it started off in the book that there's nothing new under the sun. Anything you think is new has been done before. So that harkens back to that. It is known what man is. Yes, he is, among other things, an animal. Uh, he is, among other things, a spiritual being. And most of this is not directly spiritual. What we're talking about is mortal stuff. So if you just look at life as being what you can see, hear, taste, touch, and smell, and if that's the extent of your world, then all of this is vanity, striving after the wind, ephemeral, not eternal important. That's why he keeps saying under the sun, because he's specifying that what he's talking about in all of this is the stuff that you can see or taste. So the idea of a man not being able to dispute with one stronger than he in the flesh is, in many cases, true. 11. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? The more words, the more vanity. Has anybody been listening to the impeachment thing? that whole thing is just word salad. They're just throwing words out there hoping something will stick to the roof. And the point is a fool chatters constantly. And this is an expansion, if you will, of Proverbs which says a fool as soon as a thought comes into his head it goes out of his mouth. That is the definition of a fool. Now, what we're going to do here in chapter 7 these are a series of mashalim. This is the style of writing straight out of Proverbs. Very little explanation here. It's just mashallah for mashal. So a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. I'm going to stop there because that's a complete thought. This, by the way, is one of my very, very favorite passages to use at funerals. It's wonderful because two things are being said here. Thing one is that the presence of death focuses the attention of the living. In other words, when you go to a funeral, one of the things that happens at that funeral is you are suddenly brought up face to face with the realization that life on this earth is temporary. That realization is sobering, and that's one of the things he's saying. The other thing that he is saying is 
the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And the reason for that is because at the beginning, all you have is potential. At the end, you know what was done with that potential. The example I always use, and if I ever have to do another funeral, which I'm not in any hurry to do, you'll hear it again, is you go into a lumber yard and you got rack after rack after rack of potential. And so that's like a baby. It's born and it's full of potential and it's full of life and it's joyful and all that kind of stuff, but it's just potential. You get to the end of their life and what you see is what was made with that lumber. You see what kind of a life the person lived, what he has done with the potential that God has put into him. And that is, in 25 words or less, what is being said in that chunk of Ecclesiastes. Two things. One, going to a funeral sobers you up and gets your attention, which is a good thing. And then number two is what you get to see is what the person has done with the life that God entrusted him with. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. First off, a rebuke is typically not pleasant, whereas a song is pleasant. So the rebuke of the wise is an unpleasant thing that is profitable, whereas the song of a fool is a pleasant thing that is not profitable. Six. Six. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. And this also is vanity. And the crackling of thorns under a pot, if anybody has burned thorns, typically thorns don't have a lot of mass to them. So when you light a fire with thorns or brush, it burns very hot, very fast, and goes down. Whereas if you build your fire with log or solid sticks, it doesn't flare up so much and it doesn't give that blast of heat immediately, but the heat lasts longer and is ultimately more useful. Try and roast a chicken over a thorn fire versus roasting a chicken over a mesquite or an oak fire. That's the sense of this. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Someone who sees oppression and it bothers him is what we're talking about, if he can't fix it. Eight, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Better is the end of the thing than the beginning. In other words, at the beginning you only have the potential, at the end you know what you've got. And then the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The idea there is someone who is proud typically reacts to a slight. One is patient, one looks at a situation, waits for it to develop, considers how he wants to act and so forth, but someone whose pride is pricked will very often react in anger and rage immediately. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. When a fool is angry, he will do great damage before he slows down to think. Uh, In fact, I was listening to Adrian Rogers, and he was talking about equivalent passages in Proverbs, with a fool, as soon as a thought crosses his mind, it comes out of his mouth. But the other thing is what happens when you get angry and you don't keep your mouth shut is you wind up saying stuff that you will wish later on that you had never said. And by the way, the Bible does not say not to be angry. 
The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Yeshua was angry. So, for example, when he was in the synagogue on Shabbat and he had a guy with a withered hand, and he looked around and says, is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? And he got angry with them at the hardness of their heart because nobody wanted him to heal on the Sabbath. And he reached out and healed the guy's hand. So he was angry, but he does not sin. Anger is not the problem. It's what you do with the anger that leads to sin. It specifically says God is slow to anger. It doesn't say God does not become angry. When God gets angry, he has considered it for a time, and anger is the appropriate thing at that time, as opposed to most people, when they feel anger, it just goes right out their mouth. Ten, say not. Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Don't live in the past. Where you are is the life you have to live right now. And if you're focused on how much better things were in the past or how much worse things in the past, your attention is in the past as opposed to on what you're doing in the present. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. So wisdom is good and inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. In other words, to those who are living. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. When we go through Proverbs, there are two seemingly opposite Proverbs. One proverb is wealth is a strong city. And on the other side, a fool trusts in his wealth. So which is it, a strong city or something that you're a fool to trust in? And the answer is it depends on the circumstances. And the example that I use is if you go out in the morning and you see a flat tire on your car, if you have wealth, all you've done is lost an hour while you get somebody to come fix your tire or fix it yourself, and you're back on your way. If you're poor, it can ruin your whole day and cause you to lose a day's worth of work and a bunch of other stuff. So in that sense, wealth under those circumstances is a strong fortress. If, however, you are depending on wealth and the Assyrian army is coming down and is going to wipe out all of Israel, your wealth is not going to do you any good because the whole nation is going into exile. Both of those proverbs are true depending on the circumstances. Twelve, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Notice wisdom and knowledge are different. They're spelled differently. That's how you can tell. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is the understanding of what to do with that information. So the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. You have knowledge, but if you don't have wisdom to go with it, you have a problem. If you have knowledge and wisdom, then it preserves your life. Daniel says, in the end of days, people will run to and fro and knowledge will increase. It doesn't say wisdom will increase. It says knowledge will increase. And what we have now is an explosion of knowledge. You go on the internet and you can find out anything. But what you can't find on the internet very much is wisdom. We are a society and a culture that is awash in knowledge, but not so much wisdom. And then 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
And we'll stop there. And we'll pick it up there next time. This will give you something to meditate on until we come back.